the reason for this podcast to me is to the 5 million people that listen to this podcast should know if ever they see somebody in recovery, they should realize that talking to somebody special. Anybody who tells you that they're working a program, Ashrenu, they're fortunate and you're fortunate to be in their presence. These are real people. Welcome to Extra Sauce. My name is Chaim Cohn, and this is season two. Happy New Year, everybody. And thanks to everybody who's been sending in positive feedback. Reminder to subscribe to the podcast wherever you take your podcasts. And if you feel so inclined, give it a nice rating or review on Apple. And you could like our Facebook page I just made the other day. And that way you can stay informed when there's new episodes and maybe also message or talk to fellow listeners. So I've been wanting to interview Rabbi Kessler for the longest time. And a few weeks ago we sat down together and I just edited it now. And it's really good. It's really good, if I may say so myself, just listening to it while editing, um, pretty much putting it up in its entirety. A little bit about Rabbi Mayer and Fromi Kessler, who run the JRC, the Jewish Recovery Center, as a team out of Boca Raton, Florida. The nature of their work is is private, obviously, but what I can say is that uh, they've touched the lives of hundreds and thousands of people directly and indirectly much more than that. Besides for their weekly programs, they run uh, the JRC's uh, retreat once a year that attracts hundreds of Jewish people and families of people in recovery. We'll talk a little bit about that in the podcast. Mayer is someone who generally does not share a whole lot. He doesn't like the fanfare. He operates kind of behind the scenes. And took a little bit of arm twisting to do this, but he did it primarily, I think, because he's very passionate about this theme that he'll talk about. Not just of breaking the stigma around addiction within the Jewish community, but also raising the perception of addicts to their proper status. I'm not going to gush over him because I know he won't like that, but I'll just say that I'm really lucky to have uh, him as a friend in my life and the work that he and his wife Fermi do uh, are just beyond compare. 
So I'm very happy that I get to share this and for you to be able to get to know him and some of the work he does. So that's it. Here's Robbie Kessler. We provide services for those that are in recovery. It starts if when there's a crisis in a, fa- in a family and they have nowhere to turn to. So they would call the Jewish Recovery Center and there we would do, we would do an assessment and evaluation to see what's going on. And in the event the person needs to go to treatment, we would make a recommendation to a treatment center. If not, we would make other recommendations. While they're in treatment, we would support them spiritually and try to make sure that the person that's in treatment gets their needs met. And then we provide a spiritual um, center for those that are in recovery through Torah classes and different uh Shabbos meals and Yom Tov meals, and most importantly, provide a community for people in recovery. We've opened up something called the Jewish Recovery Community Center, JRCC, and there, there are many people that are that are in recovery that that are that that live that type of lifestyle. And when you're living that type of lifestyle, a recovery lifestyle, you need to be with other people that are doing the same thing. So we've provided a community or provided, we've helped put together a community of people that are in recovery. So they can draw, they can draw from each other. They identify with this, this, the, with their same, they come from the same places. They identify with the same problems. And most importantly, they're in the solution together. So that is what the Jewish Community Center does. And there's many programs that we do to help in that cause, many different programs. Now, uh, when you first started out in this work, was it more a response to what already was rather than assessments and um, yeah, counseling so, families? So let me tell you how it started at Chaim. Many, many, many years ago, before Nam. Like what year are we talking about? What 2000, 2003 is when I started superficial, like a... You know, mock of Dick, and 05 is when I jumped into the pool. Basically, what happened was I was a, a, a Chabad rabbi in East Delray Beach. East Delray Beach is known as the Mecca for recovery for whatever reason. There are per capita the most treatment centers and halfway houses and, you know, meeting houses and facilities that are in East Delray Beach. And my shlichus was in East Delray. So my, I came down there ready to go to rent a little place to do Rosh Hashanah Kippur services and to, you know, the classic, put on the tefillin, make the Hanukkah program. So interestingly enough, we first, our first Rosh Hashanah Kippur program was in a place called the, um, the Delray Beach Tennis Center, which is on Swinton Avenue, which happens to be now, and now I know this, is the core, the, the, the mecca, the center for recovery. Like people in recovery hang out there. So anyway, we opened up a Rosh Hashanah Kippur service, and we were very, very excited about it. As you know, I had no idea who, what, where, what, what, what the people, who they were, what they were. Anyway, so we were like regular shluchim, excited about our Rosh Hashanah Kippur program. We had some people respond that they're going to come. And um, I got the mayor of the town to come and the vice mayor to come. They were both Yidin. And I was like, in a, I was elated because I felt like my shlichus is starting off on a good trajectory. 
It so happened to be that the first meal, the first meal, the first uh, prayer, there were six people plus the mayor and the vice mayor. It was a shtickle embarrassing because the mayor expected to come to services. He expected to have like, you know, pews and 300 people. He was up for election then. And it was basically, and not only that, the people that were there, there were young kids that at first glance, if you want to look at them superficially, they looked a little bit uh, OTD'd. Right. They didn't look like you On the verge of uh, the fringes of society, as you would Yeah, say. they weren't like, you know. This is a, a classic Shunnery uh, Shanishlicha story. You, know, you get three people and you have the guy that you really want to impress. Right. You know, the whole thing. So not only, not, o- not only was I embarrassed for myself mm-hmm. and i'll have you know that the second the second night the second day guess who didn't come back right anyway but bottom line is but here's how it worked so i have no idea who what was going on and after after shoshana we lived about a half a mile away and i after shoshana the services i was like inviting the chavit to come over come over and i invited the mayor and he said uh, he had other things to do he had to go to buy toothpicks for something important like that and the vice mayor was joining him in the toothpick shopping. It was like one of the, you know. So anyway, I invite the chevre to come over, the youngsters that were there. And of course, they all say, of course, we go to rabbi for lunch, no problem. They come over and I start handing them uh, mm. l'chaim. I wanted a shoshana, I know, you know, whatever. And the shoshana take away. And they all refused. I'm like, chevre. What type of... Now I'm even let down even more. Mela, I have only six people come to Chalapacha, say L'chaim. I mean, they're all saying no. Anyway, through some talking, I realized that they're in recovery, and, and that was, it was the first the first event we did. After Rosh Hashanah, right before Sukkot, I started getting calls from parents that my, my son is in this and this halfway house. Can you help him for Sukkot to get him... So can he come to your house for a sukkah? And then my daughter's in this treatment center. Can she come? These phone calls started coming from parents that had children or loved ones in treatment. Can I help them facilitate spirituality or their religious needs for them? And so it began. And over the years, we developed relationships with the different treatment centers that were there and we start and and now here's what happened. What happened was I realized after 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 a few months and and maybe a year or two of working with the recovery community it means when I say recovery community I mean mean people that are working a program of AA or other fellowships that these were very very spiritual people and were very receptive to the teachings. They were very receptive to what I had to say. And there was tremendous contrast between a normal person and the recovery community. And the contrast was epic. When you say normal, you mean like someone who's just what would be considered just a regular member just of society? Just a regular guy, yeah, a regular person that would come in. They were more like if I was entertaining enough, they would come back again for another entertainment session. It was basically Holly Taney, no, I mean, Ha'odim, Ha'odim, Azaz. It was convenient. Yeah, like, entertain me. Holly Taney, we say, we call it Holly, you know, amongst mm-hmm. my friends, I call it Holly Taney, no. As opposed to? 
As opposed to I'm here ready, not entertain me, not pour soup down. I'm going to open my mouth and pour soup down. And if it tastes good, great. But rather, whatever you say, I want to learn and I want to know. And, it, and it's v'chaibahem. Whatever you say, my life depends on what you have to tell me. They were spiritually thirsty. And it really impressed me and it inspired me. And I said to myself that this is a community of people that I want to work with. They were real. I'm not saying that anybody else wasn't real, but there was an element of realness that superseded other people. What did they, you... they lived and died by every word we had to share with them. Like the way we're supposed to live our life with Torah and Mitzvahs. It wasn't experienced as a luxury. It wasn't what they say, a dubious luxury. Yes, their life depended, depended on... Almost like what they say about a Jew supposed to be like, without terror, it's just like a fish out of water. There was something. Uh, yeah. That every word was life. I, was, I once asked Rabbi Tversky this. How come like people don't live? Terror mitzvah is like that because if it's supposed to be like that. So he said to me, that if they Taka understood that their life depended on Taira Mitzvahs, you would have that sort of response. Mm -hmm. But it's Gullus. But the recovery community understands that their life depends on the reason why they understand that their life depends on spirituality because their life was almost taken away from them. And their life, they have a new lease on life, and they're taught that the antidote is spirituality. The healing is a life of spirituality. So they are engaged in life, and it means the world to them to live a spiritual life. So they're taking in every word. Rabbi Sheistab, in his book called um, God of, uh, of Our Understanding, God of Our Understanding, he writes there that he once had a dual um, program in Boca Raton. Actually, I was the one who brought him down to Boca Raton for that Shabbos, and he spoke to the normal people, and then after he spoke to the recovery community. And he shared the same speech by both of them. It was a speech on spirituality. It was a speech on Yeshmai, and I still remember that speech. And when he spoke to the normal community in Boca Raton, not only did it not go well, but he was heckled. Like, you're boring. Like, can you imagine that that really doesn't have... So you mean we would keep quiet, they'll walk out, they'll go to the bathroom, you'll have an, a, a mass exit. Heckled. He walked out of that session. He was, he's, if you know him, he's a, a very red-faced person, a gingy. To see him white, it was a seer. Mm -hmm. So what happened? He says, could you imagine I was just heckled? Heckled. They started screaming at him, you bore us. Okay. So... And he was he was in Gansenfam Mishnah. I don't know if he was ready for it to go into it. There was an, almost a hundred people waiting for him in the small room on the side. And he had to yeah, we had we didn't have a choice. So he went back into Shuli, recombobulated himself and came back out, shared the same speech. And this time he said to me after that he never shared such an amazing talk. The people ate up every word he had to say. And it was light, it was day and night compared to what happened an hour before. And he had his aha moment then about the recovery community and their spirituality. Just from that few hours, 
It was v'chai b'hem. They realized that they, they, they were dying to hear every word because it meant the world to them. It meant the life to them. So they were a very special breed, a very special people, the recovery community. And I was impressed with the recovery community. And I decided to dedicate, my wife and I decided to dedicate our lives, our shlichus lives to the recovery community. And we opened up the JRC, the Jewish Recovery Center. And that is my full-time job to help and provide, to be a taimich for those that are in recovery. So the you before earlier before we got here you were kind of lamenting how that phenomenon of a segment here we have a segment of society for whom spirituality is not a dubious luxury as you put it but rather a necessity for life itself and they experience that as a real thing these are not individuals who woke up one day and were seeking some kind of mountaintop spiritual awareness or experience Rather, the way you put it, they were fighting for their very lives, and somehow in that space they discovered how spirituality would be the life force by which they would not just live, but actually want to live. But there are many who don't exactly understand what that's about and kind of still view addiction and recovery through the lens of a problem that needs to be fixed rather than something that's a gift that often comes in some unattractive packaging. Right. And yeah. You, were, yeah. You, you were talking as an example, particularly about how you might get a call about a shidduch or something. Could you tell yeah. me a little bit? I can, yeah. So, ironically, interestingly, I'm, I'm in Crown Heights now. I just came in for a simcha of, of, of a recovery member. It was the most amazing simcha. Chasana. And I was walking down Kingston Avenue. And there's a, a guy that's in the rec in recovery community that lives with us in Boca. He's originally from Crown Heights and he's been with us for 11 years. So, and he's also a mutual chaver of mine. And myself and the person that, 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 that saw me in Kingston Avenue. He goes, Tell me, is this and this, and this person, he's still in your program? And, and, and the tone was like, oh, is he still in your program? Means he's still dealing with his problems. This is a person that has halavai. See them across the globe would live like him. And and the idea is, is he still in the program? That is, you're referring to the person he that, was asking you about. Yeah, he was like, is this and this person still in your program? Which is an ignorant statement because he's not in my program. He just lives in the community and didn't go back to Crown Heights because he found a life in Boca Raton. A life where people are real. Not to say they're not real anywhere else, but his idea of real. And not only is he not in the program, he helps countless people that are newcomers that are coming into the program of of recovery, and he holds their hand through them. Anybody that's from a Lubavitch background, anybody from a from background, he takes it serious. And he, that's his mission. He, he feels like he was charged with that mission, that anybody who's from or comes from a firm family that comes to Boca Raton to help him walk through the path of, of AA or other pro, whatever fellowship they're going through. But the, 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 and it, it bothered me because of the ignorance. Is he still in your program? Is he still in rehab? Is he still, or when does he graduate rehab so he can come back home and live amongst us like normal people? It was a great, uh, I don't want to cut you off, but. Oh, please do. I think 
It was at your retreat a few years ago. Someone said a great, It's great, not my retreat. Sorry, at the Jewish Recovery Center. Thank you, Chaim. Uh, annual retreat. Uh, there was a story told, a joke, but a true one, of a fellow in a shtetl who was, quote-unquote, going Meshuga. And it was so intolerable, they heard about somewhere in Austria, there's a, a center that could really help people. They don't just lock them up, they actually work with take care of them. So they collected money and they sent this individual to go to go get treatment. I may mess it up, but I think the point of the story I have. And he was there for some five years. And then Anitake got, got, he got fixed. But then he said, I'm going to go back to my shtetl. How are they going to know that I'm, that I'm certifiably normal? I need proof. Can you give me my, my normal card? So they said, yeah, we have a normal card. You went through, you did a great job, you, you participated, graduated. graduated, and they gave him his certificate of normalhood, and they stamped it, and they signed it, and then he goes back to the shtetl with his little bag, and he's got his... And um, he's greeted by the, you know, the leaders of the town, and they were very happy to see him, and they said, you know, so how did it go? Did you graduate? And he says, yeah, I graduated with honors. And they said, so you're okay now? And he said, yeah, and here I have the certificate to show it. And he takes out his shiny certificate. This is my certificate of normalcy. I'm, I'm one of the normal people. He said, wow, thank you. Oh, it's amazing. It's so good to have you back. And he said, now can I see your normal card? <laughs> so going back to what you're saying, there is kind of this perception of someone has a problem, they're going to fix a problem. When do they graduate? When do they get mm. their... So uh, they can come back and live amongst us normies. Right. When the truth is that it doesn't work for them. These Bederachlal, the people in recovery, are highly sensitive, highly spiritual people. And the regular day or the regular life or the way, the way people live regularly does not work for them because of how spiritual they are. And it, it bothers me. One of the biggest things that bother me so much is, you know, I'm an, I get phone calls a lot for Shaduchim. And if somebody went to treatment, they want to know, tell me. I mean, and there is truth to why these people would ask the way they ask because there is fear around it. But I want to make an akuda, which I want to make a point, which is, you know, a very adakistic point, And maybe you can help me make this point. Tell me, um, they would ask in, 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 on Shaduchim, so why did he go to treatment? I said, I don't know. He was drinking too much. This is a, someone who's a shidduch call. First shidduch, he was drinking too much, and uh, he decided he wanted to stop drinking. So what's the problem? Like, in other words, is he going to ever be healthy again? I said he was drinking too much, and he just decided he wanted to stop drinking. And I said, there are plenty of people that drink a lot. They just never decided they wanted to stop drinking. So the problem is that he decided that he wanted to stop drinking. He was living his life. He was drinking every Shabbos. And one Shabbos, he decided, you know what? I'm not, I don't want to drink the Shabbos. Because when I drink, I become irritable. I become not nice to my wife and children. And I just don't want to do that anymore. So he comes to Shul and he decides, you know what? I don't want to drink the Shabbos. And guess what? His friend says, oh, no. I'm talking about somebody who's married. But 
mm-hmm. you'll have the same thing with a bacher who decides he doesn't want to drink anymore because he's not nice to his friends. And he doesn't want to, but his buddy says, Zag l'chaim, is the chaint is the kislev. Right. What are you trying to say? Better than us. Right. Well, you're not going to drink. I mean, so through peer pressure, he says l'chaim. And he comes back home after. He's like, and I'm not going to drink. And I want to realize. So he says, you know what? I'm never going to drink again. I don't want to drink. Three days later, he comes back to Yeshiva and they're like, You're not going to say Lechaim? And he again drinks. And then he again drinks. And he doesn't want to. So he decides, I, have, I need help. And he decides to maybe go to treatment to get better. And when he goes to treatment, as long as he was drinking, and if he would continue to drink, there would be no problem. He's so chassidish that when he says l'chaim, sometimes he ends up under the table, and he rolls himself in the throw-up. And the Baba Ganush is all over him. And the more, the more stale the Baba Ganush is, the more chassidish he is. So as long as that's going on, else is good. And he's going to marry the best girl in Lubavitch. He's very balanced. And when he's rolling under, over, under the table, it's a very balanced roll. It's balanced. The second he decides he wants to stop drinking, why does he want to stop? What's the problem? And furthermore, let's take this a step further. If you successfully stop drinking and you work a program of Alcoholics Anonymous and you work the steps, the steps is a tremendous workshop on yourself. Tremendous. It's the hardest thing to do. It's what we're taught and learned with with, with Mashpiyam for generations and is for the most part not put into practical application. We talk about Cheshben and Nefesh all the time. And even sometimes people think about it. They do a little cheshben and nefesh at night. But if you ask anybody that works the program, a 12-step program, cheshben and nefesh is meticulous. It's real hard work. You go through your day meticulously, every moment, every day. And if something happens, you ask yourself some key questions. Who takes responsibility for it? What was your part in it? What did I do wrong? How will I not do this again? You promptly admit when wrong. When was the last time you walked down the street and you saw a bachur who did something wrong? And right away he says, I did something wrong and figure out a way how to move forward. There are bachur, I'm not saying every bachur doesn't do that, but anybody who's working your program is a chassid of the highest levels. So if I cared, my job in this world, I believe, is to explain to the world that anybody who's in the program, ashray that he's in the program, and he should be on the top of the list for shaduchim because he's working a program. This is what we're looking for. LMI, there's a stigma attached to it that he drank too much. The question is, what was the reason for the drinking? But if you don't address the reason for the drinking and you're drinking, then all this is good. And And this really gets on my nerves. And I'm not saying I don't understand why somebody would ask those questions because there are a lot of people that I go to to treatment that are acutely ill and there's a reason why they went and it's taka, a red flag. But when explained over and over again that this is not your, your situation where you have to be worried or nervous, this is, this is a person who's working on himself, it doesn't penetrate and it doesn't, there's still this stigma associated with an alcoholic 
or a drug addict. I mean, today it's okay, uh, marijuana. Today you can be a chassid shiid well using marijuana. But if somebody decides that he wants to stop, then we ask the question, what's wrong with him? This is a problem for me. I'd love, I'd love to change that, but I don't know if I'll be able to ever. I get calls all the time. And this is not in a pathological way. Rabbi, I want to, I have to uh, apologize. I've done A, B, C, D, and E. And it's the most silliest thing that the person did. And I didn't even take take it personally. I didn't even think that, he, that something really bad happened. But part of the program is to make an amends whenever you've done something wrong. Not just Erevim Kippur. Please forgive me. This is like real this is real work so i you know i take it serious even though i think oh don't worry it's okay i don't say don't worry it's okay i say you're forgiven i'm happy you're you realize this and and uh it should be much that you shouldn't do it again but this is anybody who's working a program is a real chassid i mean i, I can't go through all the steps right now. i don't have all i don't have the time but i'm sure if you want to look into it you can find it Anybody who tells you that they're working a program, Ashrenu, they're fortunate and you're fortunate to be in their presence. These are real people. Achayim, the reason for this podcast is, 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 to me, is to the five million people that listen to this podcast should know if ever they see somebody in recovery, they should realize they're talking to somebody special. I once heard someone say, it was like a kind of event, a symposium, and people were trying to clarify something. That is, they were, they were trying to make the case for getting any kind of healing from a source outside of what is explicitly Torah or Chassidus. And most of the rabbis were in the room were kind of speaking to, what do you mean? Everything is within Torah. What do you need to go outside? And the Tzedach state in Tanya, as I... Mm -hmm. This is nothing new. Mm -hmm. So either is that it's like Chazer Treif because it's coming from somewhere on the outside, or they can't deny the fact that it holds true, so they'll tell you, what do you mean? We don't need a... This is nothing new here. This has all been said mm -hmm. in Torah. So one fellow in that group, who on the surface people would have just assumed that he would make the same argument, said, you know, it could say that in Tanya from today to tomorrow, but he says, I know that I... Tanya did not make sense to me until I went through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what do you think that's about, that someone could study a text, live a text even, but yet not truly experience it until they go through something? So I think that it becomes more practical when there's more desperation. This is where the acronym comes. The gift of this desperation is Rashitev's God is that when you're desperate enough to realize that you need to do this, you start understanding it more. We live in Gala, so the idea that we're, that we don't have a relationship with God when you do a chet is not really felt so real. in the program, it's real. It's life and death. People almost, you know, lost their lives and it becomes more real. I think that's, I don't understand the desire for rabbis to shove Tanya wherever they can at every problem. Sometimes people will come to Tanya through a different medium. It, it reminds me of, of, of Kayla Schaefer. You remember the, uh, yeah. and I'm, I'm not a, 
I, I, I'm not a fan of necessarily of their tactics, but th that's not the point. The point is when I say tactics, their methods and, and what they did over the weekend there. But what struck me the worst and what bothered me the worst was the the herd thing, or the, or the, or the, all of a sudden the hierarchy of Chabad was so up in arms and so concerned that they're being royim beganim zorim chas and come back to Tanya and you find everything here. But they were there and they learned Tanya and it wasn't working for them. And I'm not saying that Tanya doesn't work for them. Maybe the way they were learning Tanya and what, in what context they were learning Tanya and who they were learning Tanya with or who they were learning the Maimonim with, they were still sick and suffering. And they were Rayim Beganim Zarim. Explain, wait, translate. Rayim Beganim Zarim, they were pasturing in Fremdegarten. They were going into, into places where they shouldn't be going, into have foreign the, lands. You have the truth right in your backyard. What do you need to be roaming around? Yeah, but that was not a call for the truth. That was because maybe they were losing control of their people. And I remember that night in Alitari. I watched 2,000. I'm probably going to get fired for this. Who cares? We'll delete it if we have to. Mm -hmm. I remember two, 3,000 people flocked to Alitari to hear Safrando Alts, which is true. That we have everything we, we need. We do right have, when, but, it, uh, but, but guys, you're not doing a good job in making people understand that everything is here. It sounded almost, I remember the event you're talking about when they were kind of getting angry. Don't you know? Don't you know we have everything you need right here? The answer is no, they don't know. Yeah, but it sent the tone and the, the yeah. level of frustration. It sounded almost that they were trying to tell themselves yeah, yeah. And, and they then, weren't and they weren't even buying it. They were about warning everybody. Anybody who went and Nebuch was Nichshal and went to Avazra Don't mock them. Don't make fun of them. Nebuch. They were Nichshal. That, my friend. Is that bothered me a lot? Instead of instead of pointing a finger in yourself and asking yourself, mm -hmm. why is it that so many people are going and being pasturing in foreign right. Sundays and they're not under Kerem Chabad under the Chabad vineyard? Why is that happening? No, Ha'itachin they would go. see everything is here. The inability to point your to finger at yourself. And the reason why I'm saying this is because you get a lot of people, and I get a lot of rabbis who call me and say all the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but he's right. A lot of big people become tremendous chsidim through the medium and the vehicle of, of AA. And they allow the desperation of AA to, 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 to cross over into being a better, better yid, a better chassid. And when they learn Tanya after they've worked the program, it's a whole different Tanya. Often heard the argument of, one, the risk of someone exploring spiritual ideas outside of a context of Judaism. Number one, where they're kind of given this ability to find their own personal conception of God to spiritual program that is rooted in Christianity. Mm -hmm. 
and without going into some of the halachic uh, issues that are raised, but just the idea itself of one yeah, needing to explore spiritual concepts or spiritual ideals or way of living from outside of a context of Judaism. Wasn't that something that, I mean, in Jewish history, we were so careful to never do? What mm-hmm. would you... Uh, what would you respond to that kind of argument? I don't understand the question. I'm sorry. Repeat that again. Besides for the fact of, besides for the idea of saying, "Listen, what do you need to go somewhere else?" We have because it it's not. I, it's because it's not working. Right, but then it's not working. So therefore, go to something that one one offers uh, an ability or or room to give license to discovering or defining a god based on your own perception sounds kind of uh there is nothing in the program in the 12-step program that's different than what says in Torah. could you that's a that's a very big statement could you qualify that there is nothing in any step that would differ or or, or argue against anything that's if i cared any step in the program of alcoholics anonymous is clearly brought down in Torah. and pekiavis these are fundamental concepts in Judaism. Would you say sometimes there's a fear or a lack of appreciation for some Yeah. As if as if yeah. anything that doesn't directly come from our at least our vantage point from Terra itself. Like it doesn't have a Hebrew name on the cover. The so, author isn't so Shemer Terra Mitzvah. So let's put it in Hebrew. We'll write it Aleph Lamit Kuf. Right. Yeah. There is this fear of this. This is, yeah. And I understand that fear. Rabbi Tversky and other rabbis have, have said, and they've gone through the Chaymer, have gone through the entire teachings of, of AA, and have said over and over again not only does it not contradict, it is. And for some, it works better. The idea, like I said before, the idea of Asel Charav. How many people have a Rav, not just a Rav Halachin Shukhanarach that they don't know, or even a Halachin Ashkafa, like, I mean, not a, 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 an idea in Ashkafa that they, that they want some direction. But anytime the person makes a move, they should go Ayamino Smith, they should go right or left, or they, they have a conundrum that they call up for every direction, they call up their mentor, their sponsor, their Rav to find out if what they did is right, if they should. This doesn't happen even when we're taught a say lechorav. But we don't do it, and unless I'm wrong, I, it could be people do that. But I think that people call up when it's convenient, when they have a shailin alacha. But if they think they know the answer to a certain way of doing things, they don't necessarily call their rav. They're taught in the program to call their sponsor, basically from most things they do, they should go right or left. That's a humbling thing to do. And when somebody's able to do that, that that that's that should be lauded. I I was saying a story about um before before um before last break, before last coffee break, I was talking about a story about an Alter Chassid that was by a Fabrengan where they never spoke about a Sailor Khrav. And here I'm saying how how an Alter Chassid actually put this to work. 
And the Rebbe said, I say the and he was a chalter. Well, just to translate for some people who don't. So the Rebbe was speaking about the importance of finding a rabbi, a spiritual a, mentor. A spiritual mentor. He was in, in 1988, I think. It was... And there were many old people at the at the at the, at the uh, gathering. And the Rebbe also said then that he himself has. Don't think that I don't have a a spiritual mentor. I too have a rabbi. So there's an older man, and he um, took it to heart. He took it serious, and he understood. He understood something very deep. He understood the reason why you need to have a spiritual guide is not because you don't necessarily know the answer. Because even if you know the answer, the idea of a spiritual guide is to not listen to your own answers. Because it's you. Even if you're coming to the even same if you're right, yeah. yeah. The idea, even if you're right, you're wrong. It's a humbling ex- uh, exercise. So anyway, he calls up this man and he says, "Be my rabbi or be my be my spiritual guide." So the, the man says to him. You're already an older Jew. You got this. You're good. What am I going to tell you that's going to enhance, make your life better? I mean, you're good. He didn't let go. He kept on bothering. He says, don't give me direction. And he kept on saying, he bothered him and he bothered him and he bothered him. And finally, in the spirit of good riddance, the other Jews said, the mashpia, the, the mentor said, you know what, wake up an hour early. I guess in the spirit of just like, you know, get out of here. Wake up an hour earlier and learn chassidus, learn Torah. The man was an older man, and he hung up the phone and he followed. It was said that this man used to wake up anyway, five o'clock in the morning and learn. That was one, one thing that he got right. That was one of those, those ideas that he... He uh, perfected in his life. But for the rest of his life, he woke up an hour earlier at 4 o'clock in the morning and he studied Torah. And the question is, why didn't he just come back and tell his mashpia, look, I got this directive right. This idea I have, give me another direction where I can enhance my life better in something else. And he didn't do that. The reason why he didn't do that is because, and he followed, and he, because he understood that it's not about right or wrong. It's about the, the humility and the ability to follow direction. And this is something that the people that work a program take so seriously. So if they have a directive from the sponsor to, to do something, it's not whether the directive... If I care, if you think it's wrong, it's even better because then it's going against your brain. And therefore, if everything in your brain tells you to do A... You build up courage, you build up fortitude to actually not listen to your brain. So I'll give you an example why it's so important for somebody, let's say a drug addict. We all, we all know that addiction is so cunning and baffling that the very thing that will destroy you by using drugs in your brain later on becomes the antidote, becomes the solution to your problems. It's a baffling concept. A normal person doesn't understand this. That that That's the experience of the addict that they... Yeah, so Understood. so they understand. Let's say in the beginning when they're when they're engaging in change and they have the euphoria of change while they're sitting in treatment or the first thirty or sixty days of change. There's no there's no thought for one second to use drugs because they knew it almost killed them. So now the interesting thing would be if I were to tell you that they know it's going to destroy them and they use drugs, but it's fun. 
So it's understandable. They say, you know what, to have fun, even though I know it's going to destroy me. Okay, so they're nichshel, they fall prey to it. But that's not what happens with an addict. It's something much deeper. He said, not as I'm going to have fun, even though it destroys me, I'm going to still have fun. It is the antidote. It becomes the solution. The very samha mavas becomes samachayim in their brain. It's the most baffling thing that goes on in a, in a so drug the, addict's the, brain. There's the, the someone who's perceiving it or watching it from the outside. It's puzzling. Why would you engage the thing that is going to kill you? And to them, they're saying, well, no, 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 no you don't get it. It's this good. is actually keeping me alive, sustaining me. Yeah. So, and by the way, it, it does sustain. I was, I, I was speaking to Ellie Nash. I don't know if you know him. Mm-hmm. You know Ellie? Yeah. It's a great guy. And he said something that was very interesting to me. He said to me, he was, he was talking about uh, porn addiction. And he said the porn addiction saved his life. So, what do you mean? He says this on, on, uh, it's public, uh, for public uh, consumption. So what do you mean, porn addiction? He says, at that time, my life was so bad that the only outlet i had was porn addiction now baruch hashem i have tools that i don't have to do it so parenthetically or on the side it does for some people but i'm, I'm what i'm trying to say here yes that idea right. could you hear that all the time and it whatever it was saved me before it killed me correct or it saved me and then i now it could have right exactly right. and so now <laughs> and now it saved me again in this in the form of it brought me to this life place be, right right um, but you were you were you were demonstrating saying, a point with that idea. I was saying that this very thing not only is it just I'm going to have a good time, even though I know it's going to destroy me later on, and you know maybe you know I'll risk it. But they believe the alcoholic or the drug addict believes that this is saving their life. This is their solution, and this and so what happens is part of the exercise in following somebody else's direction is the ability to, when everything in your brain says to do A, do you have the courage, the fortitude, the wherewithal to say B and say no? And one of the ways to do that is to follow directions. Even though everything says, I should do it this way, do I have the humility to do it a different way? And when somebody does that, that's the payoff that you stay sober. When somebody does that, that's so healthy, that's so humbling, that's a a chassid. Praving is skafia every single day of his life. And because he's praving it this way, he has the ability to prav his skafia for real. Not just, he won't eat cake today or something else like that. And and I don't think the Elam understands the right. avoida of a recovering addict and alcoholic. They just relegate this person to, oh, he went to rehab. They don't understand what rehab means. There's a stigma attached to it. And they don't understand the spirituality and the avoida of somebody who's working on themselves. It's, it's, it's the, I am fortunate, and I say this, I am fortunate to work with such people, even though I have had 15 years, it becomes, mm-hmm. I am fortunate to have watched and seen people really work on themselves, and it's the most inspirational thing to see. At my Shabbos table, when there are people in recovery that are talking about change and talking about the work that they do the humility that they that they um that they experience and the it's just it's uh, for a lack of words it's just 
an amazing thing to I am humble to sit in presence of those people working a program. So why, what I'm saying is when you encounter and you walk down the streets of Crown Heights or or Borough Park and the the conversations that you're not I expect more, but that's the world, I guess. And the conversations that I have with people are so like silly and 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 and, and small minded and, and and stigmatized with oh rehab and drug addict, alcoholic, and they miss the entire point and it manifests itself in in everything, all the way to Shaduchim and then children of people that are in recovery right now that have children of marriageable age. They're all missing the point. One question that I, I wanted to ask you that uh, peppered throughout this point that you've been making is a consistent appreciation that you have for at least the perceived underdog of society, people who are often castaways, considered castaways, that are kind of looked upon with some level of shame or scorn. That seems to almost, you light up at the opportunity to be amongst and defend those. Is there anything particular for you that, attracts you to yeah that? yeah i i have this uh problem that i don't sleep at night i like to i don't like when people are when society when there's abuse of power when people that are misunderstood take the, the you know they get the um the short end of the stick it bothers me a lot and i think in the recovery community there's a lot of that going on these are people that deserve to be recognized as, 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 as spiritual giants. And the world perceives them as just, they're relegated to addict status or drug addict status or alcoholic status. Somebody who's an active addiction or an active drug addict, I see them as the potential to be the most spiritual person. Another person sees them as a behemoth, a drug addict or an alcoholic. And when I see somebody that's, and not because I'm better than anybody else, it's because I've experienced and seen it for the last 15 years. Or when I see somebody who's, when I hear somebody who went to rehab and is sober today, another person would see him as, oh, he's got some serious problems and he's got baggage. And I see a person who's, wow, he's working on himself. How many how many days do you have sober? How many weeks do you have sober? How many years? Have, wow, this man is working a program for, and, and it's just, so my job I feel one of my things that I'd like to accomplish in life is try to just to to get the purple the, the world to know how special the recovery community is, and therefore we do a a um, I get a lot of um, smack, so to speak, um, flack, uh, what flack, patch mm-hmm. for for the retreat that we do a yearly retreat. We do a yearly retreat this year. Mr. Shem is going to be in May. And we advertise it, and we make it very. Uh, we, we try to put up. We put a lot of money into it to to make it look very nice, and you know the gold standard. We bring down the best rabbis. We do it in fancier hotels. We put it on a fancier menu, and the reason why I do that is to normalize recovery. I put it in. We we advertise and spend a lot of money to advertise in the Ami magazine and Mishpacha magazine and in, on COL and uh, and the other. It's gonna take it out of the shadows. Yeah. And a lot of people say it's an anonymous program. Don't do that. But the truth is, I am so eager to tell the world, look at these people in recovery. And I want to bring it out to the glossy uh, magazines of, uh, of, of uh, from magazines. I think and there's I, something. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I think beyond 
um, removing the stigma around addiction and raising up the perception of people who are otherwise perceived as problems. There's something greater that you're, whether whether it's your objective or not, that it, there's an opportunity here that you're that you're revealing, which is what is the category what is that impulse to categorize and kind of summarize all oh, that these are these are addicts these are nebuch people with problems it's a way to kind of feel more comfortable in ourselves as like i'm normal mm-hmm. and what can often happen in that process is the parts of myself that require attention that are screaming out for attention and healing I now can push them away because I'm normal. Mm-hmm. I'm Some, not, somebody else is crazier. Someone else is crazier. Uh, I'm not that guy. Mm-hmm. So I, I buy myself another day of not needing to mm-hmm. face the darkest parts of myself or the parts of myself that have been, mm-hmm. as we say, you know, living a life of uh, quiet desperation. Mm-hmm. I get to, I get another lifeline of that. Mm-hmm. And, Pe- you know, and... Pe- <laughs> sorry Pete. no you, you know the, by the uh, way you know you know that <laughs> there was a woman in the shtetl nebuch she she was pregnant she was five months pregnant and then she was eight months and then nine months pregnant and nothing's going on and she goes to the doctor so i've never seen anything like this maybe give it another f- few days nothing 10 months, 12 months, two years, and she's 40 years pregnant. Never seen anything like this. Finally, she passes away at uh, 89. She's got to get buried. And the Chavar Kedisha says that we can't fit her in. She's, uh, we need to do something. She can't even fit into the, to the coffin. So they have a procedure and uh, they, they open it up. So as soon as they slice, uh, they open her up. There's two altly yidlach with white beards, and uh, I'm sorry, I can't do it. it's on the audio. But the two old yidlach, two old little Jews with white beards, and they're each pointing at each other. Now you go first. Now you go first. Now you go first. Now you go first. Anyway, so I cut you off. You said people. Yeah. Yakivesov. I forgot what I wanted to okay, say. But that I, is the, that's the peril of cutting me off. I know. But, no, I also forgot. The, what I was going to say is... At least you got the good joke in. It's probably more important than what I had to say. That if that is the, that if that is the, the payoff of kind of putting people in boxes that I get to... Oh, I remember. Go yeah, ahead. Go no, ahead. I I'm remember. Gonna, so I was saying that on a, on, a, on, a, on a different level, when somebody first comes into treatment, how do I know personally that he's not doing well? Is when he starts engaging in us and them. In other words, mm. those people that are in treatment right now, they really have the problems. I, whatever, I'm just, I just, a Shabbos holic, as he calls himself. You know, I just drink on Shabbos or I just do this. Or there's a bunch of goyim that they're all using crack cocaine. I just used this. So I don't really have these problems. I remember I was sitting with a young kid Good kid, I remember talking to him, and he was telling me, I'm not like everybody else in treatment. They're all using opiates and 
this one almost overdosed, and I just use marijuana. I don't have a problem. And at face value, it's a very good argument, right? Just marijuana. I should open up a website, justmarijuana.com. Just and um, I should also, I'm probably a good um, advertising for people who suffer from ADD. So any ADD medication people can stick themselves right now in here. You suffer from ADD and go from point to point. We can delete this, right? No, this is very good. It's per- but ADD here? is perfect for podcasting. We can keep this here. All right, I thought it's an anonymous program. Yeah. So what was I saying? Oh, so he so he said to me, "I'm just marijuana. Is the, I don't have these real problems." So I said, "Okay, one second. I was able to look at his notes. I was a staff member in this treatment center, and I saw that the behaviors that he was engaging in." before he came to treatment, were not only maybe just as bad as an opiate user, but even worse. Stealing, lying, cheating, an emotional terrorist at home. And, you know, everybody was going crazy around him, but he's only using marijuana. So I asked him. I said to him, Mailuch, for lack of, I'm just keeping names anonymous. Mailuch. Not to be confused with Mailuch Cohn. That's not what I mean. I know he was on the podcast before. Was he good? Very good. This is real ADD going on right now. Yeah. You can delete this? Mm-hmm. So you tell Shmulek. Shmulek. So Shmulek, I said, I looked at your notes, and you not only do you have us, it's even more. So I said, Mela, I understand the opiate addict. And we all know that opiates has a chemical, to, that there is a physiological component so if there's a physiological component, we all know that if you're physically addicted, you can start doing crazy things. You can lie, you can cheat. You turn into an animal just to get your your opiates because if you don't, you start withdrawing, sweating, nauseous. It's, it's a horrible feeling. So people literally turn themselves into monsters so they can be normal, so they don't feel sick. So I can, in a certain way, justify their behaviors because they were out of control but you just a marijuana user there's no physiological dependency I said to him I think your problem is even worse because your behaviors in order to get your drug and the, 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 the dependency wasn't as acute as an opiate dependent maybe even worse so it's not what you're doing it's why you're doing what you're doing so this idea of this guy is doing this and this and therefore he's got a problem and I am now recused. I don't have issues because this guy has a bigger problem is the problem. That person brings you, a, um, uh, uh, makes sure, you feel sure. safe that you don't have problems because people have bigger problems. So when you see a drug addict, so then your minor use is not really a problem because he's in treatment. Right. So you were making the point that even within within between addicts themselves, yes, once there is this phenomenon of us, them, comparing, measuring, it's usually an indication that there's something cooking under the hood. Recovery looks like whatever somebody else is doing, I can relate to it, I can I can understand it, and I can experience, I can appreciate their experience and see how I can better my, my life as a result of their experience. Right. I mean, one of the things that often people talk about going to a first meeting or in the beginning of recovery when they're kind of just kind of uh, feeling certain 
periods of desperation or dealing with consequences, or maybe they're forced to by they get a DUI or something and they'll go to their meeting. And one of the first things they'll talk about or remember is that they started comparing themselves to other people. And one of the indications that they're ready to start the journey is that all of a sudden they see how they share more than they differ. Right. Because all of a sudden there's, there's no need to like raise these walls of defense. Exactly. So we were bringing that back to the point of how people within general society will engage in this us them thing, which keeps them from feeling safe. Feeling, it keeps them to, it allows them to feel safe and normal and healthy and they don't have to look at whatever they're holding on to in the mirror. And I, and not to engage in that itself by what we're talking about. I, the reason I'm, I'm mentioning it is I think the work that you're doing is not just giving people in recovery the respectable status that they deserve. It's giving people an opportunity to consider that perhaps the parts of themselves that they feel they have to shove away into some you know, under the carpet, perhaps those might be the sources of their greatest growth and mm -hmm. self-discovery. Mm -hmm. Because if that's what it is for this other person, this addict, this problem person, then perhaps it's the same for you. And maybe that thing that you are worried about getting it coming out or getting worse, that you feel if only it would just go away, my life would be perfect. Maybe just like for that other person, for you too, mm -hmm. that might be something that is not just worthwhile, but maybe the uh, the missing link between you and mm -hmm. a life of growth and self-discovery. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So I think that's uh, that's an amazing thing. Yeah, I want to I want to share one little. One last, a little, I don't know if it's last, I have all day, but Chaim, it gets boring after a while, Ali, so you'll let me know if we... So, now we have a, a from religious guy that came to treatment, and before he came to treatment, some of his pathologies was elitism, was, I'm this big guy in the community, people take care of me, like, entitlement, and the idea of, of humility was such a far idea. Anyway, so he came to treatment, he was working and stuff. And I, was, I went to an AA meeting um, a couple of weeks ago, and I was observing at the AA meeting, and I saw this person, a beard and payas, serving coffee, not acting like, okay, now I'm going to be humble. It was like a natural idea of humility, serving coffee to a bunch of goyim in a church basement at the AA meeting. I was like, you know, this, my friend, is recovery. Like, he was this big kanaka, the best in a mention. You can translate that. How do you translate a kanaka? It was... Um, I, yeah, a kanaka. K-N-A-C-K-E-R, Google it. After Shabbos. Yeah. And the idea of him serving coffee to Goyim, and he was always complaining about the Goyim this, the Goyim that. With Goyim, why did you put me amongst Goyim? Because we did the um, placement. He rather, 
because his drug use was more refined because it was done in a firm way. In other words, when he was doing his cocaine, the powder was more refined. It was more faredl. It was more from. It was more Jewish. It was a more Jewish mm-hmm. experience. So what are you putting me together with other goyim that do cocaine? And when I saw a few months later how he was at the AA meeting, taking care of the coffee, not because I think his sponsor told him as an idea, and he followed the sponsor's direction for humility to take care of coffee. I said, Ashreinu again. Oh, here's a guy that chopped it. And I'm sure he'll live a much happier life. And I'm sure his wife and children have way more nachas from him. And HaKadosh Baruch will have more nachas from him. And his community will have more nachas from him because he's living a life of recovery. What might be uh, a message for those who are, you talked about living lives of quiet misery. Maybe they're on the fringes of what might be considered questionable dependencies. Right. So number one, I would I would ask them to to understand that it's not a referendum on them. It doesn't make them a bad person, or it doesn't quantify now who they are because they decided to get help. If I cared, their life can be an amazing life as a result of address admitting to the, that they have some problems, so they can change their problems. So much of the confusion when people hear about the 12 steps is the first one. Admitted that we were powerless. Why would anyone want to do that? That seems very opposite to the message we grew up with, right. be it from general society or in Jewish. People have free choice. We have power. We have the capacity. Why would I want to undermine that by telling myself I'm powerless? Okay, it's the power to be powerlessness. It's in the most amazing, it's the most powerful thing to do. The powerfulness of saying no, the power, not saying no, the powerful is saying I don't know. It's the most powerful thing to do, or you can just be engaged in wishful thinking, head in the sand, thinking that you know, and your life continues to be a royal mess. So powerlessness is not a weak thing. It's the most powerful thing to do. There's a misconception around it. Is that, Would you agree with me, Chaim, on that? I definitely do. And I think one of the ways people kind of confuse that, they say, okay, I agree that somehow that works for whatever reason. But what am I going to... I'm not really powerless. So what am I engaging in some kind of tact? No, the powerless is thinking that I don't have the answer. Admitting that I whatever I've tried hasn't worked. And frankly, take a look at yourself. Has it worked? Right. So that's kind of the distinction... The the powerlessness is not necessarily an issue of do I have any power to consume this substance or not. It's a general powerlessness over life itself that I happen to experience acutely around this specific thing. Or the humility to ask for help. How about that? If you can't be powerless, you have the humility to ask for help and say, I have tried and I haven't done it. Can I? somebody else try to help me? hasn't worked for me. My life's still a miserable mess. Now, can you stay? F- yeah, you're a functioning alcoholic, but you're miserable. So why do you have to hit bottom where you fall off the cliff, borrow somebody else's cliff falling experience and apply it to you and ask for help? Why do you have to go 
to a place where you have a DUI or you end up in jail, or your wife wants to divorce you, or your kids want to leave you, or you become a just why go there? It may take longer. Just borrow somebody else's story, apply it to you, and ask for help. Realize that you don't necessarily have the answers, and it's actually a very powerful thing to do. You're saying this idea of, well, if I ever reach that point of danger or consequence, then I'll know that I'm in that place that I need to start this process. What you're saying is, is that it's possible for someone to kind of either one, see the trajectory that they're on or take note of the phenomenon that they're involved in mm-hmm. and be able to right. kind of... Right. The question the question one should ask themselves, are they truly happy with what's going on? A true moment, like in, in Khadri Khadarim, when they're in the room of their rooms and the inner chambers of their hearts and the inner chamber of their souls, they ask them, are they okay with what's going on in their lives? A true moment. Nobody's listening, nobody's judging, nobody's looking. You ask yourself this question. Am I happy with whatever I'm doing? Let's say substance use. Am I happy with the weed that I'm smoking? Am I happy with the alcohol that I'm consuming? Do I truly like it? Forget about the judgment. Nobody's calling you an alcoholic or an addict. When I tried to stop, was I able to? Nobody's saying that you've lost your business, you've lost your wife or children, you haven't ended up in jail or a DUI or on legal problems. But are you truly happy? Do you want to change? If the answer is yes, can you change? Have you tried to change? And if the answer is no, you can assume that, that you're powerless over this. Just because you haven't destroyed your life completely it doesn't mean that, you're, that you have this under control. And if that's the case, do yourself a favor. Nobody says you have to go to rehab, but you can at least work a program or ask somebody else to see what they've done to change their lives and see if you can apply it to yourself. This is a very powerful tool, a very powerful thing to do. Uh, The concept of borrowing someone else's experience. Mm -hmm. One last question. Uh, Over the 15 years of the work you've been doing, sadly, you've had to face a lot of death. And oftentimes that death of, someone who was in your community, someone who you spent hours, tens, maybe even more hours with. So I I, I know that for a fact. And um, how do you deal with that? It's very difficult. It's very difficult because one of our flaws is that we don't have that much boundaries. What do you mean JRC, we allow people into into our lives. They become part of our family. They become a part of my children's family. My children have drawn have have become close to a lot of the people that are that are that are part of the JRC. And if they die or they overdose or so you're saying, just to clarify what you mean, yeah. first of all, that you said one of the flaws, so to speak, is the lack of boundaries. So like whereas some organizations or treatment centers may have some kind of Guidelines, not guidelines, but um, conditions. Mm-hmm. You have like an open door policy. We have an open. There are some boundaries of who we accept and take in. We're careful of who we take in. But once somebody's in in our, uh, you mean in your in our fold in our in our community, then like part of the family. And as a result of that, our children get close to to them. We get close to them. You know, they practically live in our house for for Shabbos. That's very difficult when somebody dies, relapses, doesn't do well. It's it's difficult. One of the ways that we deal with it is that when somebody does well, we don't take that for granted either. 
like I said, I just flew into New York. There was a, a wedding in Florida that I was there for. We had to come back, and we were in Eretz Yisrael, and we came back early to go to the chasana. Then there was Sheva Brachas, and I was in a conundrum. Should I go to the Sheva Brachas? The Sheva Brachas was in Lakewood. And I said, you know, I have to go to the Sheva Brachas because it's a simcha. When there's a simcha, you have to celebrate, not because it's always the, the flip side to it. And then there's another Sheva Brachas a day later. And I hear I'm staying another day here to be part of the simcha. So whenever there's simchas, we like overdo it to be part of the simchas, dance at the simchas, join in the simchas because of the flip side of it. And the flip side is a very difficult, very difficult thing to go through. And um, and I hope it doesn't happen again. But when it happens, it's very difficult. I would have to imagine that one of the truths that would need to be faced when something like that happens is that it isn't only the individual who's struggling with some form of addiction, who's experiencing powerlessness it's also the people around that person who care for that person deeply that are also experiencing powerlessness yeah it's very difficult like people feel like they want to help and they sometimes you just can't like they're taught in Al-Anon you didn't cause it you can't cure it and you know you can't control it and and, and family members just they want to feel like they can do something to help and sometimes you just can't and it's a difficult, difficult process to be involved in. Mental health is a very difficult, very difficult. So if you, if you think you can do something, at least you're empowered to do something. But when there's nothing you can do, you just sit by, and the only thing you can do is not co-sign the BS that, that, that the addict talks about or not enable or not to be enmeshed in the process. You know, And that's the only thing you could do. It's very hard on the family as well. It, it sounds like there's this I'm not responsible but I have responsibilities right there are things I can do by for not, someone and sometimes not, that often is by not, not doing, doing yeah but at the end of the day I'm not responsible right? I'm not God and I don't decide right. who will live or die and I don't really right. have the power to control that right but having said all this there's nothing more that I would rather do than be part of this community, even though sometimes I feel like I want to, you know, myself, my wife, my kids, it's, you know, it's, it's not an easy um, job, but there's nothing better. There is nothing more. There is no more um, meaning in life when you when you watch somebody's life change, from one end to the other end, and just be part of that process. There's no greater happiness than that. And there's no greater meaning than that. And, and, and there's just, if you're a shliach and, you, uh, and, and this is your job, however hard it is, you actually see change of the highest levels. And there's, that's an amazing and humbling experience to be part of. Uh, thank you for sharing some of that mm -hmm. uh, experience mm -hmm. with us. And I wouldn't listening. do this for anybody else, Chaim, just know that. I'm a very private guy, but as the megafrekt and the best chaver kadev in the days. Thank you. It's not just the thank is not for me. There's a lot of people I'm, I know will listen and benefit from what you shared, and I think that uh, ultimately, not just in your case, but for many, that that's a selfless act. And um, let us all say Amen. Amen.
Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Mayor. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, Rabbi what, Kessler, please. What, Not for thank me. Thank you, Rabbi <laughs> For me, for Taita. I mean, I, you can call me Mayor Tavada as far as... Yeah, I'm just the Taita that I've learned. You just, please. Yeah. <laughs>
ayam 